Welcome to the Best Coast Political Podcast with Jeremy Cardona and Matt Dell, coming to you from the traditional territories of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, today known as the Esquimalt and Songhees First Nations. It's actually not raining out. It's a Friday. And uh, Matt, how are you doing? Hey, Jeremy. I'm pretty good. Friday. I'm ready for the weekend. Uh, happy to ch- talk about Conestoga Huts and uh, yeah. Greater Victoria Harbor Authority, which I uh, don't know a lot about. Yeah. Do you want to introduce our guest for episode 23? Yeah, sure. So we have Ian Robertson, who is the chief executive officer of the Greater Victoria Harbor Authority. Um, he is, you know, oversees uh, the the authority, which deal, um, you know, has a ton of properties in Victoria's Harbor, oversees uh, Ships Point and the cruise ship terminal area, mm-hmm. and other docks throughout the um, throughout the harbor. And I got to say that the harbor is a bit of a mystery to me. I know the Greater Victoria Harbor Authority oversees some of it. The city oversees some of it. The province oversees some of it. And obviously the federal government probably, I assume it oversees the most part about it, including the water. And it's just such a strategic, but also just a cool part of Victoria. We have this beautiful harbor. And in my 20 years here, I haven't seen like a real cohesive vision of what the harbor what it what it means to us we know it's a working harbor which is great i love that it's active and busy there's no patios on there's not a lot of life on the harbor and um i'm just kind of curious to to hear about that today how does that working harbor compete with a residential harbor in a bustling inner city and i'd like to hear his answer to that and it's hard to access the water in a lot of places which is a, a big issue but people can see it but it's hard to actually get down to the water and figure out how you can I don't yeah. know, keep your toes in, put a kayak in, have a picnic. Go swimming, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I know people swim further up the gorge. Um, up the gorge, yeah. And then, of course, this unspoken you know, thing about cruise ships. What are cruise ships to Victoria? Mm-hmm. People are very divided on it. They bring a ton of business, tons of revenue. Um, but, but cruise ship tourism isn't what typical Victorians are about. I don't know people who go on cruises. Like, yeah, we're a destination, yeah. but we're not necessarily a cruise culture in the way that maybe Americans are, are cruise culture. And I'm just curious to see about his views on, on cruising and climate change, sea level rise, uh, shore power. Yeah. I've got and, a and bunch what the future of about cruises. So I've got a bunch of questions about the cruise ships too, and uh, things like shore power, local air pollution, and things like that. Of course, we haven't had cruise ships for a couple of years, which I imagine is, has had a big financial impact on the Harbor Authority. So. Before we bring on our guest, uh, we were going to give a bit of an update on what's going on with the HUT initiative that Matt and I are involved in called Casa Greater Victoria. So it's been a little while since we've done a podcast, mainly because Matt and I have just been so incredibly busy with all the stuff that we do in our lives. And um, the, the background on this one is that in December, we connected with uh, a filmmaker named Crystal Lauten who some of you might remember from episode, I think it's two of this podcast where we had her on along with Sarah Potts and we were talking about the challenges of homelessness and sheltering of of the unhoused here in Victoria and in the CRD. And Krista is a filmmaker and made a wonderful film called Us and Them and is actually working on more projects that document what's been going on at Tiny Town, the, uh, the, the village over in North Park. Anyway, we connected and um, I essentially took inspiration from these, uh, this, this village of huts that's down in Eugene, Oregon. And if anybody's been reading the, the articles about our initiative or what's going on in Oregon, you know that they've built the, I think it's three villages of Conestoga huts, which sort of look like old covered 19th century wagons. 
they're they're relatively small, but they're big enough to put a bed in and have a window and a door, a locked door. And so they've created three of these villages in Eugene, Oregon, and they've managed to shelter a whole bunch of people. I can't remember the exact percentage, but they've taken most of the people off of the street who are sleeping rough and were, have been able to put them into sheltering as people wait to get into housing. And so in a sense, we've been taking inspiration from what they're doing down there and trying to see if it could work up here. So we set up a GoFundMe page. We fundraised quite a bit. We raised over $10,000 and we were able to buy enough materials to build two huts. And uh, about a month ago, we built the first one that uh, in January that went on to a church uh, called the Shelbourne Street Church up in Saanich, actually, the 3600 block of Saanich. And that one is not currently sheltering anyone. It's more of a show hut uh, to let the community see what the huts look like and wrap their brains around what the, what the concept might be. And then we just built a second hut that is on private property and the second hut is actually sheltering someone. And if anyone's seen the videos associated with our movement, Casa Greater Victoria, you know that this individual's name is Alex and he's an unsheltered person and he's been sleeping rough down on Government Street. And so he has actually moved in to hut number two. And we're super jazzed about it because, um, well, we're able to take an unsheltered person off the street and put them into sheltering. And so far, it, it seems to be working. Yeah, and we just another thing we did this week, Jeremy, was set up a small volunteer team to support Alex. Um, I, I know there are paid volunteer teams out there, paid teams of professionals out there, but it's just so hard to access. Um, so we're working with a small group, a couple of retired social workers, and just people off we met online who are helping Alex with the necessary paperwork, uh, health stuff, and, and getting getting into the housing system, which is not easy. Like we looked on use like Craigslist, use Victoria, Facebook. Zero chance, you know, a guy living, living homeless, homeless with a dog, he's not getting an apartment that's going to be cheap. Yeah. So now we're trying to get him onto these lists and supplements and like, it is not easy. It is crazy that, you know, I think when you're, when you're at this stage of vulnerability, there should be a one stop shop to go like, Hey, I I need a hand up here. Not an administrative process that uh, a a manager in government can't even figure out. So yeah, he tells us as he's been sleeping better than he's slept basically in, in six months or more. And um, that's true. He has been. Yeah. So it's a better mm. template for him. He's, he's dry. He's warm. He's sleeping well. And we can start this process of supporting him now. And then for CASA, we're going to decide on what we do next. I mean, we're really just trying to kind of meet all the local stakeholders. I think everyone's interested in this idea, but it's more of getting a meeting together to go, where's the location? Who has funding? Like, how can we make this a viable model that that actually includes services, you know, bathrooms, sto- um, security, transitional yeah. supports, like mechanisms to get people into housing. Like there's been some criticism that this is just like, you know, a hut in the backyard. And, and really that's not our goal here. Our goal is to, to really um, acknowledge that people here need the basic services and supports and, and that would have to go along with it. And that's how the Eugene model, model works too. Exactly. So, uh, you know, and thanks for addressing that, Matt, because the, you know, people keep asking us, well, what's next? What's the vision here? Where is this going? The reality is, is that we're a tiny volunteer organization. We don't have the capacity to end homelessness in Victoria. But I think speaking on behalf of the group, we do believe that local governments do actually have the capacity to at least take all the people who are sleeping off the, on the street, off the street into sheltering, and then 
eventually pivot them into housing. And of course, that's where the province comes into play. But the reality is that the city and the CRD over the last two years, over the last four years, could have been doing a whole heck of a lot more to end this crisis. And so what we're trying to do is establish that this is a viable concept. Now, eventually, down the line, I think the idea is to have probably more villages of tiny homes, whether they be Conestoga huts or modular units or shipping containers. I mean, I'm not personally, I'm not just devoted to the hut concept. I think the huts have been very interesting and, and we've been able to build them for about you know, $3,500. So they're cheap. You can build them at home. But in reality, if we're going to scale this up and put these, uh, these huts onto city-owned hardscapes, we're going to obviously need more support, like government support. We can't do it just as volunteers. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's kind of why we, yeah, that's just part of the work going forward is just kind of learning about this. And I mean, I'm learning for myself, you're learning for yourself, and maybe others are learning with us. I definitely have heard from people following us online going like, it's just been interesting to learn about what the potential is and just think outside of the box. We don't have to rely on traditional solutions here that haven't been working. So yeah. And there's been overwhelming support though, which has been amazing. The chamber of commerce, various nonprofit organizations have supported us. Uh, volunteers have come out of the woodwork. I want to just thank all the donors and the people who volunteered to help make this initiative a reality. I feel really supported by the city and and, and in fact, the media attention has been kind of overwhelming. There's been articles in the CBC and Czech News and Capital Daily and Times Colonist and Black Press, and everyone has covered us, which is nice. It's amazing. But it's like, you know, we can't do it all alone. That's the reality. No, no, of course not. No, and there's a lot of really passionate and dedicated people in the city with lots of yeah. funds. But um, sometimes like grassroots initiatives are exciting because it allows you to bring something up to speed really quickly where like we both work in government, you know, trying to get approval for a one Conestoga hub pilot that could take six months by the time it goes totally. through approval process and here enough for a little group goes here it's already done and they go okay well that just saves us six months and let's build on it but like I've been really impressed how supportive some of the established groups have been already yeah me too and I mean I think maybe, maybe the last thing I'll say about this before we move on to our guests is that what I'm what I would like to do and I think what uh, what a lot of Victorians want is is to figure out how we collectively can shelter all the people who need sheltering and there is a feeling right now, whether it's true or it's just a perception that downtown Victoria has fallen onto hard times. Pandora is rougher than it's been in the past. And, um, and, the, and the local government seems to have just sort of thrown its hands up and, and given up on some level. Tiny town being a rare exception, which I think was, which has been successful. But there's, there's about 2,500 homeless people in Victoria, which is a lot. But in terms of the total number who are actually sleeping outside, what's called sleeping rough, it's only about 100 to 150. So for me, the priority is making sure those 100 to 150 people are actually sheltered. And then we can begin to deal with the, the broader issues and the broader numbers. But actually, I mean, to me, it's just unacceptable that we live in, in such a wealthy, organized society and we have people sleeping in doorways. It's just, it's just simply unacceptable. That's crazy. Back to the harbor, we have billion dollar yachts pulling into our harbor well maybe not billion but you know hundreds of millions of dollars yachts pulling in which is what it is we're two blocks away we have our own residents you know that can't even get a tent or can't even get a conestoga hut mm -hmm. and i think that's just kind of you know this this bubble that we live in where this has been this, this is acceptable it's acceptable yeah. to walk past homeless people it's acceptable to we blame them we stigmatize them as their fault blah 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 and it, 
it's just like it's just so sad and so it's nice to try to like you know just well, we have, awareness I, of that. I believe we have the capacity to solve this problem and that's part of what we're trying to do with this conestoga hut initiative is just to show people you can do this it's not rocket science not that expensive we have the capacity to take all the people off the street period and anyone who says otherwise i think lacks imagination or, or will but it is doable yeah yeah so let's keep providing updates you know on the podcast going forward but maybe we should jump into the harbor authority yeah let's do it welcome to the podcast ian hey thanks for having me matt you want to get us started here yeah, I mean, I guess people might want to know why are we doing a podcast with the Greater Victoria Harbor Authority? And it's one of those, you know, for us and a, a random guy like me, it's one of those huge parts of our city that I don't know a lot about. I don't know a lot about particularly how they are formed, a little bit about what they do and really what's a long term vision with, you know, helping build Victoria and helping, you know, build the city that we all want to see. So this is kind of this more of a background podcast, um, you know, for, for ourselves and for any listeners to really hear it straight from Ian on, on, on how this uh, GVHA plays a role in our city. So uh, maybe I can start it off with, with, with a question. And Ian, my understanding is Greater Victoria Harbor Authority was formed in 2002. And, you know, I guess the first question is a not-for-profit. What, what's the impetus for using a not-for-profit structure to form a separate entity to manage the harbor? Like, why isn't this done by a local government? Or, or what's the benefit of, of this model that was set up in 2002? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, so back in 2002, the federal government of the day was going through a process to, you know, across the country, divest a lot of, well, we'll call them community harbors. Uh, to to local control, um, they were federally controlled, federally operated, and the decision was taken that for some harbors it was better served by putting the control in in local hands, and so that's how we were created back in 2002. And I think you know I, I'm speculating, but the structure of being a not-for-profit organization you know, allowed us to you know uh, uh, flow whatever we earn or surplus money we earn from our operations back into sustaining a lot of the community amenities that we own and operate. And some you know, people might be saying, okay, what's a community amenity and, and, and what do you have? So, you know, I, I often say that we steward a lot of Victoria's favorite places. So for example, the breakwater, uh, it's under, under, we own that. It's part of the lands that were divested, and we're responsible for maintaining that. And you know, we can't charge an emission, nor would we. So you know, we've got to look at ways in which we can generate revenue, so that we can put back into community amenities like the breakwater, like the lower harbor causeway, ship point, all all iconic places within Victoria that people visit, go to for recreation and. So we, we run the organization. I, we run it very much like a small business. So we, we, you know, we think entrepreneurially. I think having local control allows us to make quicker, better decisions and decisions that are probably in the best interest of, of the residents of Victoria. So that's, I think, one of the benefits of our, of our, of our governance model. And can you tell us a bit, uh, Ian, about where the funding comes from? Do you own assets that you're, I mean, are you owning, do you own marinas, for instance, and, and charge user fees? Where's the, where's the revenue? 
Yeah, no, we do own. So marinas are some of the assets that we own. So in terms of, of uh, we generate about 70% of our revenue comes from cruise. So we own and operate uh, the Victoria cruise ship terminal at the breakwater district at Ogden Point. Uh, cruise represents 70% of our revenue. The other 30% comes from leases and licenses that we charge for uh, example, of food operators to operate down at Fisherman's Wharf, which is a property that we own and operate. Uh, whale watching companies that have a, have a license to operate and uh, off our terminal and yes, uh, marinas. So uh, recreational boaters that come in, uh, uh, float homes at Fisherman's Wharf are all sources of uh, revenue for us. And so our goal is to generate as much surplus as we can. And that allows us to to, to drive that money back into the properties that we, that we own and operate. How do, how do you balance those competing priorities? It seems like a tough job between, you know, you want to maximize revenue, which has always got to be in your mind. You want to provide a good service to boaters, but you're also in charge of this huge asset around city building and giving back to actual, the actual, the residents that live here. How do you kind of juggle that in your own mind? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and, you know, be honest, Matt, it's an ongoing challenge, right? It's an ongoing challenge that we have. And, and you know, you know, obviously, you know, there are, are people that are going to be listening to this and are, you know, are not huge supporters of Cruise. And, you know, I, I totally accept that. And I understand that. And I think, you know, that's a great example of where we have to try and balance out, you know, the economic benefit of Cruise, yet, you know, matching that up to the to the social and environmental impacts that cruise brings. And so it's a real balance. And I think the same thing with, with operating and, and running the facilities uh, and the properties that we do is how do we, how we, how do we continue to, to support them? Uh, and at the same time, you know, try to fit the needs meet the needs of, of the residents of Victoria, which at the, at the end of the day is, really who we primarily uh, need to need to respond to. Do you, do you have any kind of advocacy? I mean, as a GVHA, do you have any kind of authority or bargaining chips with, say, the cruise ship industry and pushing them towards having greener practices or advocating for shore power or that sort of thing? I mean, what can a GVHA be doing to decarbonize that industry? Yeah, no, that's, that's really good, Jeremy. You know, I, I've been here seven years and I think when I arrived here, I think that there was this feeling that, uh, oh my gosh, we're just so happy to have the cruise lines come here to Victoria, and that, and and that, you know, there wasn't really much of a pushback, if I could be frank, and I think that that has changed. We've realized how we know that Victoria plays an important role in the whole overall Alaska itinerary, um, but also too that you know, we have to find a way that's going to sustain the industry. And I, and I mean, when I mean sustain, I don't mean just keep the ships coming. There's that, but how do we sustain it, you know, socially and, and, and environmentally? And so that's why back in um, 2018, we, we worked with the local company Synergy Enterprises, which are kind of like carbon accountants to do an audit of our overall operations down at the breakwater district at Ogden Point, and not surprisingly, 96% of the greenhouse gas emissions came from cruise, and we weren't surprised by that. And 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 most of the emissions come 
while the ships are alongside. It's called hoteling. While they're 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 not going anywhere, they're hooked up and they're just operating, and they've got some engines running to run all of their operations on board the ship. So it was really from that that we wanted to get a bit of a baseline on where our emissions were, and and that report and the findings really led us to move down the road of uh, looking at the installation of shore power, and we're committed to that. Shore power means where ships can power off and plug into the grid and, and use uh, the, the electricity to run their operations. You know, out of 350 ports around the world, there's only about 15, like one five that have shore power globally. So it's, 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 uh, it's not frequently used, but it's growing and it's the right thing for Victoria. So that's kind of an example of where, you know, we're trying to, we, we will be influencing the cruise lines that when they're here and they're capable of being able to power in and use shore power so that that has a, a positive impact upon the environment. Just a shore power question about that. I don't know a lot about the details, but what is the complication with getting shore power? Like, you know, we, we tend to get power for a sewage plant. You run lines out there, you add, you, obviously they need a huge amount of electricity, but what's the actual physical complication of getting, is it a funding issue or is there just literally not enough power lines going down there? Or is it just is it that you're delaying to put it into your larger master plan? I would say it's all of the above, Matt. I know when we first started to pursue shore power, I had that very basic question. Okay, well, is there enough power coming over to Vancouver Island to to power up these ships? Because uh, you know we didn't want to be able to put all this this uh, infrastructure in place, then have a you know, a brownout in James Bay or parts of downtown Victoria. So, yeah, so there is enough power, but it's it's both, there's a, there's a, I would say first and foremost, there's an economic limitation. In other words, for us to put in, so we have three terminals, three berths down at uh, the Breakwater District, Ogden Point. Uh, and so for two plugs or to power up two ships is around $25 million. That's a lot of money for us as an organization when we only generate maybe $16 million in revenue and maybe you know a million and a half, two million in, in in surplus. So so we have to find ways in which we get that money from the private sector, namely the the cruise line into the cruise lines themselves, and then also work through the feds and the province to try and get some funding there as well. So there's the economic limitation and 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 that we have to overcome, and we're working on that. And then secondly, there's just the physical. Uh, how do you get the power? Uh, it, it is in downtown Victoria, and how do you get that? Kind of a, a kilometer and a half out to, to Ogden Point. So there's there's the physical limitation as well, which we are right. currently working on plans uh, with BC Hydro. Oh, okay. I, I knew it was something complicated. Nothing is ever yeah. easy. No. Um, so 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 that makes sense. Now, obviously, you know, your GVHA is GVHA is a little fish in the cruise ship industry. I mean, it's a massive global industry, and I, I don't expect that one little organization or person like you has the, has the ability to influence it. It's just interesting to monitor. You know, the, the changes, it is an important part of our city, but it has a lot of repercussions that are a lot of, you know, people are interested in and debatable. So it's good to hear from you. Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, although I, I do wonder if, if, I don't know, because Vancouver is one of the places that has shore power, right? And so this is beginning to pick up steam. There are some limitations in that not all cruise ships have the capacity to take shore power. I can't remember what the percentage is, but some of them just simply cannot do it. And so they have to just sort of idle there in, in in hotel mode, but um, I think every little bit of pressure on that industry does help. Would you agree with that, Ian? Oh yeah, no, totally, Jeremy. And you just just on that. So when we looked at shore power after we did the work with Synergy, 
we then uh, worked with a global or a global engineering company to do a business case and feasibility and we wanted them to do more of a, a deeper dive into shore power and what we learned was that uh, when we looked out on the schedule that by based on where the cruise lines are going I think it was by 2030, 90% of the cruise ships coming into Victoria would be shore power capable. So that was good to know that the majority of them coming in would be able to plug in. Uh, but yeah, there a lot of those. So I mentioned earlier that there's you know 16 ports uh, that have have shore power around the world. Majority of those are on the west coast. So I believe it was back in. I think it was by by this year, by 2022, uh, California mandated that uh, all of those ports had to have shore power capability in order to have the ships that plug in. So, so we're seeing that trend down in California. Seattle has it. Vancouver has it. Juneau, Alaska has it. So, you know, we're not we're not the first one on the West Coast to to do this, and we're going to take a lot of our learning uh, from what we saw in Vancouver. Vancouver put that in. I think it was in 2010. And they've seen some significant reductions. And it's just the right thing for us to do here in Victoria. Is there, I know this is not your wheelhouse exactly, but what's the situation with uh, electric powered boats? You know, is that even on the discussion right now? Like, are you prepping for 2075 where there might be battery powered cruise ships for all that we know? Any update on that? Yeah, not, not, I know there's a lot of advances being made. I mean, we're seeing Harbor Air uh, with their electric, you know, airplanes. Uh And I think we're starting to see that, but not to the size that would be able to accommodate and and work with a cruise ship. But what we are seeing is that more and more of the cruise ships being built are are going to be be able to be powered by LNG. And we've seen some of those ships launch. And, you know, we saw through COVID, I think a lot of people thought a a lot of some of the cruise lines did retired a lot of ships kind of in 2020, the first year of COVID. And a lot of people thought, well, it's because of COVID. Not not necessarily. It was because they're getting all these new ships coming online, which are much more uh, energy efficient. And and we have seen the launch of the first you know, LNG fueled ships. So so we are seeing that the cruise lines are making you know, efforts um, to you know uh, reduce their emissions and be and and their overall carbon footprint you know there's the discussion are they moving quick enough is there more they can be doing and that's always a good discussion but we are seeing that you know they're making they're making the moves and they're and they're doing what they can to to minimize their footprint thanks ian maybe we can shift gears a bit and talk a bit about uh ship ship point and what the master plan is i mean to be honest with you, Ian, I've sort of followed along with what the discussions have been in terms of uh, looking ahead and development, both within the Inner Harbor and around in the Breakwater District. But I, I'm I'm be willing to bet that most of our listeners don't really know what's in the work. Could you be? Would you be willing to give us like a high level overview of what is the vision for the next ten or twenty years in terms of development in Victoria, uh, in in our harbor and along our waterways? Yeah, you know. Uh... One of the complications of developing a master plan for the Inner Harbor is that much of the Inner Harbor is much like a jigsaw in terms of its ownership. You've got the federal government owns part of the federal government still owns part of the waterfront, specifically out where where the Coast Guard is, and then you've got GVHA, you've got you've got the private private sector that owns, and then there's the province. And in fact, you've got two different ministries within the province that have ownership 
over over uh, land uh, and water lots in the inner harbor and you've also got the city so it 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 it's um it makes it more complicated to develop a master plan and and i know that you know we've got one of the most beautiful harbors in the world we really do and 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 i feel we don't maximize its beauty enough and more can be done and i think um, it's on our radar that perhaps we take the lead in bringing all of these entities and, and groups together to come up with an overall plan for the harbor. Now, the city did do some work on Ship Point. And you see, that's a great example, Ship Point. It's co-owned. It's kind of 40% is owned by the city and 60% is owned by GVHA. Uh, the Greater Victoria Harbor Authority owns I would call the pier part of it. Uh, it's it's the land side that is kind of co-owned by the city and GVHA, and it's a real kind of funky property line. So when we when the city embarked upon developing a plan for Ship Point, it did include the area that we owned. It also included the water lot, which is right out front of Harbor Air, which is owned by the city. And I think the city did a good job of trying to envision what that could look like. And what they ended up with is a, a really good plan. And, and we were a part of that discussion. The challenge is, is where does it fit in within the city priorities and all of the other things that have got to happen. But that's a good example of where the city took the lead in looking at that particular property and seeing how they could bring the groups together. I think there's an opportunity for us as an organization to kind of take the lead and bring everybody together to develop an overall plan for the harbor. Okay, so yeah, I like that. Is, is there not an overall plan right now? Like it just, I, I don't quite understand. Yeah, no, there's not. There's not an overall plan for the harbor. There's a plan for parts of it. And that's been the challenge that I think each group that has an interest in the harbor has developed their plan, but there needs to be in my opinion, an overall cohesive plan that looks at everything from call it, you know, where Coast Guard is right around up to and including the bridge. And there's could be others that would debate or, or would suggest it should go beyond the Johnson Street Bridge and up, up to the Upper Harbor. Um, and I think that's something that we have to we have to work on. And I think it's an opportunity. Is there a working group? Is there a working group where you, those, those, those partners, uh, the city, the feds, province, whoever else, uh, sit down regularly and, and discuss these types of things? I can, I can see the challenge for sure. Yeah, no, there, you know, there, there, there hasn't as of yet, Matt. And I think it's just been because that for each of us, there's been just different priorities and other issues that we've had to deal with. But I think there is a real opportunity. And, and, and I think I'm more optimistic because just over the last year, uh, you know, we as an organization took the lead on, on developing a, an economic development survey of the harbor, of the working harbor and the value that it brings to Victoria. And we took the lead on that and brought a number of groups together and we came up with a very successful uh, plan and report. And I think we could take the learning we had from that and maybe, you know, uh, springboard that into uh, into a plan for the overall harbor you know let's not forget that for the last couple of years we've all been fighting covid and and it, it, that i think is i think for a lot of organizations maybe government aside it's all a bit about survival so there hasn't been the time the money 
or the resources to focus in on a plan. Now that we're kind of hopefully coming out of that, maybe we can revisit that. Just, just to follow up on that, I mean, I guess it, it raises a kind of a theoretical question is, is do you want to make a plan at a point in time and go, you know, us and you are going to make a plan for the next 50 years or the harbor is really something that it is, it is, it's always evolving. It's always changing. It's a, it's a working harbor. Yeah, now it's a working harbor and historically has been, but it's also becoming more of a residential area, an area for community with walking trails. So how do you balance those needs of creating a plan for the future when, you know, the, the needs of the harbor could drastically change over the next 20, 50 years? Well, yeah, it's, it's a great question. I don't have an answer for that. I mean, you, one of the other things that we've got to grapple with is sea, uh, sea level rise. And, 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 and how, do you, how do you incorporate that into a plan that's going to be sustainable in 50 years from now? And we've done some modeling on our property to, to understand what the sea level rise is. And I think it's a question of, of you know, doing that same kind of exercise um, in other areas. You know, I, one of the things that's interesting within our name, we have the word authority and it's a bit, it's misleading to be honest. And I, I'm not happy with that name and I wish I could change the name because it gives the impression that we have control and responsibility for the entire harbor. And we don't. Quite mm. frankly, we, we own property. Uh, right now, it's, uh, the, the, the water is controlled by Transport Canada and uh, the aerodrome, which Helijet and Harbor Air operate in is, is under the control of NAV Canada. So, you know, we're, we're not really the authority. And I think some people think because of that, that we should be doing more and that we have we should be doing more around the overall plan for the harbor. And so it's always a challenge uh, in that, you know, we're a pretty small organization, even though we have a lot of areas that we're responsible for, we're still a, a very small operation and, uh, and, 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 and really challenged with, you know, resources in terms of people and, and financial to be able to, you know, fulfill our, fulfill our goal and our mission. Well, that's fair. And that's a really good answer. But Ian, I want to kind of come at this question from a different angle and ask you, I mean, either speaking on just on behalf of yourself or on behalf of GVHA, what are the big changes that you want to see to ShipPoint? What are the big changes that you would want to see in the breakwater? What do you think needs to change in Victoria's waterfront? Uh, back, so, so we were working on a master plan for the development at the breakwater district at Ogden Point. So let's take a look at that area because that's, you know, 30 acres of a, of a right now it's basically an empty parking lot and uh, there's lots of opportunity there. And we were working, um, we were working through a, a master plan for the development of that site. We got it to a point that we were really happy with and then realized that there was going to be millions of dollars required in terms of, um, of uh, reclamation of the site for some for some environmental issues that were there long before we took over the property, and um, and and at the time, um, our board made the decision to kind of pause the development of the master plan. I think we need to pick that up at some point and examine uh, you know what we could do with that site. That's within our control, but again, it's going to take millions of dollars to develop that site, and we just don't at the time right now we don't have the resources to do that. Um, What's the vision? Well, the vision is to create a, a, a space uh, to make that more of, to really focus in on the marine industrial nature. That's not to say we're going to build factories down there, not at all, but to, to you know, create um, some, some soft industry that could support the marine industry. 
down to that site, that will always be a working terminal, a working harbor. So how do you balance out development at the same time, allow activity, marine activity to occur at that site? Is there, so you don't want there to be like nightlife activities. So that's like kind of a, like a party central and there's like a bandstand and there's music. I mean, I mean, I mean, I think that Victoria could stand to have much more of those kinds of assets. Yeah, I agree. And I think we, you know, we, we've been testing the idea of more, I'll call it social activities down at that site. We, I think up until, up until 2020, we operated uh, the barge. Yeah. Uh, and it was really successful. Uh, it, you know, Friday nights at the barge was kind of the, the go-to place. And I think that allowed us to kind of test the waters a little bit to see what could happen down there. And uh, personally, I'd like to see more of that happening on that site. And, um, and, and, and so that gave us an opportunity to kind of see what that could look like. And there was really, really a positive response overall to that type of, uh, that type of activity down there. And I think we could do more of that. And what about a chip point? What's the, what would you like to see at chip point? Well, ship point, you know, there has been, there has been conversations that we've been having with, uh, with the West shore. And there's been talk around a ferry service connecting the West shore to downtown. I think that's a phenomenal idea. And I think that ship point could be, uh, used in that way. And I, that's quite frankly, what I'd like to see it, how it used is, is being a, a go-to site. Uh, I think it's unique in that we could be doing more to activate that site for events, uh, to bring people down there, uh, to try and find ways to get people perhaps down up above, down closer to the water yeah, to experience it. Cause it's one of the unique areas. And if you think about it, you know, there's not too many other cities where you can get down to the water. And I've seen other cities. Uh, I was in, uh, for example, I was in Lisbon for a, a conference a couple of years ago, and I've seen how they've activated, they've activated their downtown and their water waterfront. And I think we could learn more from what other cities have done. It's just a question of the financial resources to develop that. Yeah, another question, another issue with all of those areas is we're stuck in this dilemma that we have everywhere else in our society where we're still a very car dominant and car dependent society. And, you know, I drive a car, I grew up in a car culture family, but you really realize when you look at areas like Ship Point, how much space we reserve for vehicles and how much space we need, need to reserve for vehicles. Like you're going to the Harbor Jet, like you're going to take a cab down there, you're going to drive. And we still have those two big parking lots. And Ship Point for me is really a struggle of where do you provide the parking that, that people are currently used to park there? Because right now it kind of literally is just a parking lot for the most part. And that's going to be a tricky issue to navigate. Any thoughts on how we kind of deal with that dependence right now on parking and, and the roads and pathways down there and then, or taking it away for, for public space? Cause I think the public space is easy. It's, it's, it's a blank, blank canvas. You could put an amphitheater, you could put, markets you can do anything but what do you do with the people who expect to park and drive through there well i think that's always going to be one of the challenges is how you know is is, is whatever you create down there there's got to be the accessibility to to bus to, to 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 bicycles to be able to get people down to that area that's why i really like the idea of using it as a hub for a ferry terminal a passenger ferry terminal connecting the west shore into downtown Victoria and, uh, and making us a little less dependent on cars for commuting 
and for also people to to get down there and how do you make how do you make that area more walkable how do you make it more accessible and i think that's that's going to be one again a challenge in that in that particular area but you know there's no question that there's there's lots of um of opportunity if i look at that particular parking lot i mean that's owned by the city and i think it, it comes down to you know city deciding what the priorities are and limited funding and and you know what do they how do they allocate the funding to be able to develop that site with all the other competing priorities that they have yeah interesting i mean definitely there's definitely a narrative shift i think a little bit to people going okay wait a second like no matter how much you need parking it shouldn't there shouldn't be waterfront parking like that is very rare land and we do have a couple of parkades of course right behind there and maybe it's maybe Maybe it's maybe you need a new parkade. You go, we're going to just put that one back over here or add a couple la layers to another parkade. I'm not sure, but absolutely uh, for use of that space to have just ridiculous parking lot yeah. right on our waterfront. Well, you know what? And, and you just reminded me, it's not just one, it's two, right? It's the one, it's the one adjacent to where Harbor Air is. And then you've also got that same parking lot at the foot of uh, Fort Street. Uh, that, that, and it's just, like you got, you look at the, I look at that particular area and go, man, that's just ideal for, for development of some kind. And I'm not talking about putting up high rises or anything else like that, but I mean, just developing that site, yeah, but you see, that. that's where, that's where you've got, you see in that particular site that's owned by the province. And so, you know, how do you, how do you, you know, what is the priority for the province to develop that particular site? And that's the challenge with, having multiple owners you could say of of the harbor it's not just one entity which would make it a lot easier you've got a lot of different owners of property which make it a little more difficult to come to a cohesive plan what's the rationale for the province owning that particular strategic piece i mean the province disposes of land all the time that they don't yeah. need that seems like a funny one for them to own other than it's close to the capital but is there is there a practical reason why they own that fort street waterside lot i don't know the answer to that matt it's a great question but i don't have an answer for that it seems like ideal canada for a land swap you guys can all sit down with your tiles and go you know monopoly yeah trade this one for that one and that one for this one you know like it, and that yeah. happens that just happened with the school district in the city of victoria you know right over by fernwood high by jeremy's house where they all kind of realigned everything and, and you know yeah. made made space for a bunch of new important developments so interesting to think about anyway it is. It's something to think about, and and it, and all, and it's something that we we should all we all be working towards. Uh, I, I'd like to shift gears and talk a little bit about the First Nations components of all of this because I'd like to know what relationship you have with the Songhees and Esquimalt First Nations and how they're brought in as a stakeholder, and um, in, in what way the GVHA is looking to enact reconciliation. Yeah, we're. Uh... We're really uh, proud of the relationship we have with both the Songhees Nation and the Esquimalt Nation. They've been members of our board since we were created back in 2002. I should I should mention that, you know, our governance structure is that there are what we call eight member agencies that comprise our board, which give direction to me and uh, and, and provide governance to the organization. So, Songhees Nation, Esquimalt Nation are two of the eight, uh, and they are on our board. Um, uh, within our within our structure, our governance structure, we've always had a First Nations Economic Development Committee, um, which uh, works with the nations um, in terms of you know, working with them on economic, social, and cultural uh, initiatives. 
Um, we, we have for a while now uh, a plan um, and, and a commitment that 1% of our operating revenue uh, gets generated and goes towards uh, First Nations activities to support them. Uh, we made the commitment some years ago um, to develop a First Nations uh, economic or First Nations um, development manager. And so we have a person on board uh, that works with both the nations in terms of furthering their, their social, cultural and reconciliation efforts. Um, and so it's a very strong part of our of our mission and part of our constitution is to work with both the nations and uh, we're really proud and, and honored with the relationship we have. Um, recently, we worked through the Canadian Council of Aboriginal Business and their PAR program, Progressive Aboriginal Relationship, uh, to guide us on how we can support the nations uh, on their road to, on our road to reconciliation. And um, we've made some good efforts there. Uh, we're, and it's just a continual learning process. And, and um, I'm really proud of the work we've done, but with, with a lot more to do in terms of working with, uh, with both the Songhees Nation and Esquimalt Nation. Mm -hmm. Sounds like you, you, you've had the right approach. It's an evolving approach. We're learning as we go, uh, you know, indigenous communities and governments are learning as they go as well. And I, I've seen some pretty good work out of, out of the GVHA. Like I've attended a couple of the lunch panels that you've done where you had yeah. indigenous businesses on there. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it was actually some of the first time I've actually seen that type of thing in Victoria in a really open and accessible way of young indigenous entrepreneurs talking about their work and I, I really enjoyed those sessions that you did I don't know maybe that was last fall or something yeah we we made a commitment uh to to really develop uh indigenous businesses and we were the ones to create an indigenous business directory and uh and have shared that throughout greater Victoria and I think the work that we're doing is being recognized and I and I know every day we get organizations coming to us and say hey you're doing some good things with with, uh, with Indigenous relations, how can we learn? And, and I think our role is to say, here's what, we're, here's what we've learned, not, not look at us, you know, we know everything, far from that. I think it's, we've done some good things uh, and we're learning and, and here's how we can, we can kind of further that. Um, we, uh, you know, we have a strong, uh, we have it worked into our procurement policy uh, that X percent of our procurement will be uh, designated and uh, towards Indigenous businesses. Interesting. Uh, and we also have a, uh, a a policy within our our HR policy that you know X percent will be uh, positions will be fulfilled uh, from Indigenous uh, in, Indigenous culture. So, you know, we're doing some good things. Uh, like I said, I I proud of the work we do, but we've got more to do. And but I I do like the path that we're on. Mm -hmm. I guess uh, I, final question for you, Ian, uh, unless Matt, you want to ask more, but uh, the only other thing that uh, I, I wanted to ask was about tourism and travelers and the impacts of the pandemic. How has the GVHA been affected by the pandemic, by the lot, like complete loss of tourism dollars, not complete, but almost near complete loss of tourism dollars. And what is the plan to revive Victoria as a destination? What's your role in that? So um, as an organization, uh, we were significantly impacted by COVID. Uh, and with COVID, uh, 
with COVID, uh, the government, the federal government made the decision to close the ports to cruise uh, for the 2020 and the 2021 season. And we fully supported that decision. I mean, the, the health and safety of the residents was number one. And, um, and just recently, you know, the minister has announced that ports will be open to cruise. I think it was as of November 1 of 2021. So that's a good sign. Um, in terms of the economic impact, uh, it's worth over $130 million a year to the local economy. So, you know, well over a quarter billion dollar hit to the economy, uh, many jobs lost. But I don't think just, I don't think necessarily about our organization. I think about the many businesses that, that were impacted through the loss of crews. And, and, and it wasn't just a loss of crews. It was the fact that our borders were closed and tourism was shut down overall. So visitors coming to Victoria, whether it be on car, you know, ferry, airplane, or cruise, Clipper, were impacted. Coho. Yeah, Coho and Clipper were also impacted. So it's a, tourism plays a significant role in the overall economy of Victoria. And, and cruise is a piece of the overall tourism mix. I know that many of our operators uh, that work off our properties down at Fisherman's Wharf and the marinas were significantly impacted. So while we were affected and our resources were cut, I had to make some tough decisions around reducing our, our workforce. But at the same time, you know, doing things to keep entities like Fisherman's Wharf operating so those operators could, could try yeah. and get some business. So I think... I think, you know, as we are sitting right now, you know, hopefully we're going to begin to see the end of Omicron or at least it leveling off and perhaps fading away. And, and there may be some optimism mm -hmm. uh, about, about this upcoming summer. I know I'm very optimistic about the return of cruise this year. It'll be slow, uh, but steady. Uh, and I think the same thing can be said for the return of, of tourism uh, in Victoria. Great. I have just one final question. It's just more of a technical question. I'm wondering about your relationship between the city of Victoria and how those mechanisms, you know, where the discussions strategically actually happen. And now I know GVHA has council liaison, which is a councillor assigned. How does that work? Where does that city of Victoria representative come in? Is that one of your eight, you know, strategic members there? Or how is that information flow transferred high level to make sure that those two groups are working collaboratively and closely, um, you know, for the, for the interests of citizens and the residents. Yeah, it's very important that we have a strong working relationship with the city of Victoria and we do on a couple of levels. So Matt, you're right. Uh, the city of Victoria is one of the eight member agencies okay. that sits on our board. So uh, who, is the, who sits on that though? Is it a councillor or a staff? It currently is a, is a councillor and uh, that, that sits on that. And it's for, I think a two year, a two-year assignment in the city of Victoria determines who who we get in terms of a of a of a board director. Uh, so we have a it's through that connection, but I, it's also been important to me that we establish you know, a strong working relationship with the staff. And so uh, you know we've really done a lot of work to make sure because that's where some of the decisions and the work actually gets done is at the staff level. So it's important while we have that political connection and that political working relationship, it's also important that we have a good working relationship at the staff level. And I think, I think we're doing a good job on that. I think we're, we always realize that we're, there's going to be some areas that we're going to disagree on, but I think it's all about having an open dialogue, whether it's at the city council level and or at the staff level. 
That's great. Well, this is fascinating, Ian. Thank you for joining us. You know, you answered a lot of uh, my, my basic questions in a straightforward way. And I think we got into the weeds a little bit on some of the issues around, uh, you know, climate and emissions and sea level rise and, and city building. So I think that's a great primer for myself and hopefully others will uh, enjoy learning, learning from this as well. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time yeah, to join us. Solutions. And so thanks for, thanks for your time, Ian. I thought this was a really great chat and we look forward to following up with you in the future. Yeah, thanks. And if I could just give one uh, gratuitous plug on anything that we've touched upon today, you know, a lot of information is on our website. So uh, gvha.ca for anybody who's listening and wants to know more, go there. And there's also links on how they can get a hold of me if they've got any questions uh, coming out from this. So uh, always happy, always happy to answer any questions and be available. Just want to thank our guest, Ian Robertson, one more time for coming on and enlightening us about the GVHA. I learned a ton. Uh, how about you, Matt? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of nice to ask him like the really basic questions of like, hey, I'm a resident who knows nothing. Here's my top questions off the top of my head. And like, I, I see some opportunities there. I really like the discussion on like collaboration between local residents. Like people want to have a say over a harbor. And we want to talk about what the vision is in terms of climate change, in terms of like a community place, in terms of like how much working harbor is important, but like a community harbor with arts and music and activities is also important. Like, are we, are, how can we get a better balance there? Yeah. And also their relationship with, uh, with the Songhees and Esquimalt First Nations, it sounds like they've done a ton of work in that capacity. I, I learned a lot about the cruise ship question and what the, some of their aspirations are. I mean, probably the biggest thing I learned is that they're not actually an authority. And even Ian said, they're not, it's almost like a misnomer. They're not a jurisdiction. They're like a nonprofit that manages some assets. But in my mind, they were like, they had like a quasi jurisdictional status, but it sounds like they don't really. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, that's, what's, the, what's the difference between jurisdictional status and you own a bunch of land well, and that government. land is all strategic? They're not a government, you know? Like, no, they're, so they're a land, they're a non-profit landowner. Essentially. Uh, that provides services and clearly has some regulatory power over, uh, like in terms of like visioning and, 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 and setting, you know. Yeah. So my question is, where plans. do we go from here? What's next for the harbor? Like what do people in Victoria want from their harbor? Where do we go from here in your mind, Matt? Um, I don't know. I'd like to see maybe perhaps the Victoria City Council take a bit more of a like public role in reaching out to residents. Like, you know, we, we work, work on our neighborhood associations, like coming in the neighborhoods going like, do you guys use the harbor? Like, what would you like to see? Like, and, but it ties into downtown, like this downtown working for families. Where's the public space? If I bike downtown with my kids, what park do I go to first? Where do I, and then how do I go to the harbor? And when I go down there, what do I do? Well, right now, the only thing I really, you know, maybe I go to Redfish Bluefish, which is too much of a line and I'll maybe go on the inner harbor which is okay but it needs to be longer and bigger and I, I would really like to see the harbor collaborate with the city on more public space and really using that like David Foster walkway and those type of things to you know make it a, a harbor for people too. I've got some ideas on that which maybe I'll be able to share at some point in the not too distant future but I think that's that's probably good for today. Thanks uh, to everybody for listening hope you learned something and we uh, look forward to having your listens next time. All right, adios. Bye.